Good morning. Um, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Luke, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I get to teach today. In fact, if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis 2. Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 are kind of going to be where we float around a little bit today and move back and forth. Um, and uh, I think it's going to help us see Jesus and the gospel much more clearly. If you don't bring a Bible, if you didn't bring a Bible or you don't have one, we will just, you can kind of keep up with us. We'll throw the passages up on the screen so you can follow along. Um, but while you're turning there, there was about, I guess you can add up maybe 10 years total where I've either been a coach to athletes or I've been a personal trainer in a gym. And one thing I learned real early in the days of personal training is when someone new comes in to work out, some of you have worked at places like a gym, and you, you can probably attest to this, that it, I'm telling the truth. It takes six to eight weeks of constantly pouring encouragement on before they quit. If they quit, it's usually within that first month and a half, two-month window. I say six to eight weeks because after the sixth or the eighth week, somewhere in there, they start to see results. They don't really need your encouragement anymore because they're looking at it in the mirror and they're not missing any more gym sessions. They're just going to keep coming and coming and coming because they like what they see. But usually when people stop working out, it's in that six to eight week period. All right? That's what they train you in gyms. Now the thing is, is those first two or three workouts are the worst. I mean, anytime you have somebody that's trying to be healthy from a place of just total not working out at all, or maybe sickness of some kind, that is when you see this drastic change because your body is saying, no, this isn't working, you're going the wrong way. I mean, I've seen clients just throw up. I mean, day one, day two, their body is in just total, they're, they're saying, no, I'm just going to go on strike. It's not happening. You're not crawling on the spin bike. You're not going to do any more of these things. Whatever they're called, you're done. And sickness comes, and it's amazing even what the sweat smells like, Right? I'm trying to give you the whole experience. Can you tell? You can actually tell what people ate last by what is coming out of their pores when they're on a spin bike. It's almost like we're sweating gravy or something. Spices and weird things coming out. You can almost tell what they ate last. So why am I telling you all of this? Since we started this series, and this is the last day in the series, by the way. Since we started it, some of you, many of you, have been having very difficult conversations with your spouse. Hard talks, hard prayer times, right? Emotional moments. And I've talked with, I've spoken with several of you, and I've heard things like, Luke, I don't know if it's working. I don't know if it's working. I'm all frustrated and confused, and she's over there crying, and it just feels like it's, it feels like it's not working. Let me just encourage you you are going in the right direction. You're just sweating a little gravy right now, okay? It will get better. You're headed in the right, I mean, it's gonna, you're going to have turbulence and you're going to have chaos. And those aren't bad things. That's just showing you where things were. That mud and that silt has always been there. We're just kicking it up. We're just stirring it up in the water so you can kind of see it, visualize it, contend with it, bring the gospel to it, minister to it, and move right on through it. That's what's necessary. So I want you to keep that in mind today. I want you to keep that in mind because it might get a little bit more awkward for you. Today we might sweat a little bit more gravy, okay? Um, I know Kevin has already told you if you have kids, be a good day to um, maybe have them in another room. We're not doing anything provocative for the sake of being provocative. We don't really need that, not really interested in that. But the Bible leads us in such a direction today. So let's look at Genesis 2. We're going to read verses 18 through 25. 
And it starts off like this. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now to the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So it's very interesting, this being one of man's first jobs to name aardvark, ostrich, rhino, monkey, whatever. Whatever the animals were, he's naming them. He's describing, he's being a scientist in this moment. Then man gave names to all livestock and to the birds, the heavens, and the, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Aardvark, not a good helper. Not a real good fit for me. For this, Not going to help me. Rhino, not going to help me. He cannot find a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to man. And then the man said, actually, he didn't say anything. He's singing right here. This is a stanza. This is poetry, right? Husbands, when you first saw her, did she sing a little song inside? Little boys the men turn on? That happened for me. A little song. That's what's going on here. This At last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Why is he saying at last? Because he's naming creation and he's not finding any of that creation helpful helpful to him as a helpmate. But now he does. And he's even naming this part of creation too, that which even came out of his side, woman. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now that last part, naked and not ashamed. Growing up, I always felt a little odd about that passage, if I'm totally honest. Just the whole idea of walking around naked just seems a little uncomfortable and awkward for everyone involved, you know? I don't even like going to the beach because of that like hey here I am I'm in shorts you know it's not acceptable anywhere else in society but here it is so here I am I'm not even comfortable with that walking around in just a bathing suit they're walking around totally nude before each other to me I just I've always struggled with that a little odd maybe but not having any shame or disgrace being unashamed I think that's pretty cool that is something I'm not so weirded out by I'll say that. You see, we're like limp brushes as we grow up from a young age on. And like limp brushes, and I don't care if you're talking the old school ones where you move just one way or the roller ones, it doesn't matter. They all pick up lint. And we start accruing things through life. Sins done to you, sins that you have done. Specifically sexual sins. The ones that stick. The ones that are there. We start just piling them on, accruing them, gaining them. And then one day you marry somebody, and guess what? They're a limp brush, just like you. With their own set of sins, things they've done, things they've seen, things that were done to them, and it just stuck. And when they marry, these two sexual limp brushes, they have a bigger problem than the sum of its parts. That's what we have. And we pretend, when we're married, 
you probably pretend that you're not unashamed about anything. I'm totally unashamed, right? But you know better, don't you? You know better. I know better. There are things that we don't want to talk about. Things that we don't want to be brought up. You're watching TV, you're seeing a show, you're watching a commercial, and then that commercial comes on. That joke in the sitcom comes on, and all of a sudden you draw back and you're uncomfortable, right? The erectile dysfunction commercial. The one treating the STDs. And it's just not so glamorous as it is on the screen, you know? A sitcom about a young woman losing her virginity and how that's a big joke, but for some of you it's just not that big of a joke, is it? Points of shame depression, menopause, abortion, things that we see that as soon as we see it, hear about it, read it, it just reminds us of that piece of lint on our lint brush. Body image, abuse, it goes on and on and it all comes down to the fact that you have shame. You wear it, you're a carrier and you don't like to talk about it. You don't like to bring it up. Even if you're intimately involved and you have a good marriage and you love your wife, you love your husband, still you don't want to bring it up. Still, even if you've been married 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, that shame just sits there. You know, if you're married, you already know what I'm talking about. Hey, you know what? If you're single, you already know what I'm talking about. And I would submit to you single folks that meeting that right person, Mr. Right or Miss Right, is not going to make you less insecure about that piece of lint that you hate being brought up. She's not going to fix it, man. He's not going to fix it. You see, shame, one of the primary things that it does to our marriages is it destroys intimacy. It drives a wedge right between two people that were designed to become one, which you can't be any more intimate than that right? And when I talk about intimacy, I'm going to use a very broad definition, right? Millions of people have tried to define this millions of different ways. I'd like to just say intimacy for our purposes today is to be naked and unashamed with our spouses. And I'm talking emotionally and I'm talking sexually as well. I'm talking both because most of the time when we say intimacy, we think sex, but it doesn't have to be sexual, It's just emotionally being open, bearing your soul, being transparent, having no hidden shadow, no little portion that you've never brought up, knowing and being known at a very transparent and deep level, serving and being served at a very deep and transparent level, being totally laid bare, vulnerable, exposed. That is what I'm going to look at as intimacy today. And this was the nature of Adam and Eve before sin came in, wasn't it? He's singing a song, she's walking around naked. taken right out of them. They've got this beautiful relationship, full disclosure, perfect relationship with God. They had no shame. They were very naked with each other emotionally and sexually, and there was no shame. Genesis 3-7 happens, though, and this changes everything. Then Genesis 3-7 came where sin entered, and it says this, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And yes, it means just what it says. They just had leaves sewn together to make kind of a diaper, kind of a little outfit to cover their shame, to cover their disgrace, their humiliation. That's why they did that. Sin rushed in and it brought disease with it. 
and it brought earthquakes, and it brought famine, and it brought horrible things, and yes, it also brought shame. It brought shame. And they saw how exposed they were suddenly, and they rushed to create coverings to cover that being exposedness, that being seen feeling. They wanted that to go away. And from that point on in human history, every marriage, every marriage, every relationship will be plagued with shame. It'd be something we would all struggle with. Maybe before we entered in the marriage covenant, maybe after, maybe the whole time. And we are just like our parents. And we rush too to make our own coverings. We have our own fig leaves. They don't look like that anymore. We don't have leaf diapers. We got something else. And we're going to talk about a little bit of that today. Um, Dan Allender and Tremper Longman are two great commentators, great theologians, and they say this about shame. They say, shame is the traumatic exposure of nakedness. This is experienced when we feel the lance of a gaze tearing open the various coverings we put on. What is revealed, we feel, is an inner ugliness. And Jean-Paul Sartre, he says, shame is the hemorrhaging of the soul. And I can agree with both those. I'd like to say it's also pervasive. It sticks with you, doesn't it? You wake up and it's still there. The memory of it. The thing that happened to you that you never talk about. The thing that you did that you kind of wish that you could maybe do enough good works that won't make you feel as bad about it. It's there. It's in your face. Every day. David actually knew this in the Bible. This won't be on the screen, but he says, All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame is covering my face. And that is exactly what it feels like. Date night after date night. Romantic moment after romantic moment. After the kids have been put down. Those private moments you get together. And there's still shame in the room. There's still shame with you in the room. And it makes us feel rejected. And dirty. And short. And shrinking. And debased. And worthless. And inadequate condemned and disgusted, low, makes us feel humiliated, makes you feel dishonored, unclean, makes you feel leprous, like there's a disease on your soul. And the thing is, is under this heavy, heavy blanket of all of these feelings, we're conflicted because there's a piece of you that would like to kind of expose it to your mate, your spouse, and say that thing Hey, I've always wanted to tell you this, but I've always afraid that you'll reject me. Or hey, I've always wanted to communicate this to you. I just don't know the right words to put behind it. Or hey, this thing happened in my past, and I have to be honest, I've not been totally honest with you. But there's this feeling, as bad as humiliation feels, being humiliated and rejected feels even worse. So we don't do it. We just pile on more fig leaves. We cover our shame. And I am talking again emotionally and sexually because make no mistake, the problems that you have in the bedroom, friend, those are coming from outside the bedroom. They start outside the bedroom. They're emotional problems long before they're sexual problems. You have to know that. You have to know that. So whenever you hear the phrase today, naked and unashamed, I do want you to think emotionally and physically because for many couples, for maybe some of you, it's a lot easier to shed your clothes than it is to shed your souls. And it will make a big difference in the long-term health of your marriage. It will. So what I'd like to do is just take a little bit of an autopsy on shame and what it brings. 
the disgrace and what it brings. One thing that I've seen, I've noticed, and that we even see in the Word, is that it actually brings distance between spouses. A little perimeter that you build, a little wall of secrecy and protection. And that little perimeter, that distance, it promises that you won't ever be rejected. It promises that you'll always be safe. And you could almost hear it in your own mind saying, man, I don't really want to talk about deep stuff, right? Hard stuff. I don't want to pray through that with my spouse, with my husband, or with my wife, because then we might get around to that area. And if they ever found out about the damage I have in that area, they will reject me and I'll be crushed. And so we just avoid it. And on it goes. Shame is carried one day longer. This is why many of you don't have hard talks, hard prayers, deep discussions. That's why it doesn't happen. Because, listen, it's just a lot easier to talk about the kids. And it's just a lot easier to talk about work and politics and the neighbors and all kinds of things that are shallow and distant. It's just easier. It's hard to talk about the, the, the feelings that you are always having, they're always haunting you, the, the depression, the same-sex attraction, these things that plague you that you hope no one ever finds out about, it's much easier to say, hey, look what the kids made, and everyone be happy. It's hard to talk about the STD that you carried into the marriage, the abortion that you had. It's harder to talk about these things, your body image, and how you don't feel good about the way you look, and that's what's causing you not to connect with your husband or your wife properly. Those are very, very very difficult things to talk about. So we don't. We build a perimeter of secrecy, of silence, of safety. And this has radical implications. Because without depth and discussion, without depth and hard prayer and transparency, if that doesn't happen emotionally and you guys can't pull that off on a couch, it will never happen in the bedroom again. Sex becomes very mathematic. It becomes calculus, just actions, very separate from who you are and how you connect with each other. I mean, not just actions, but actions that many of you would just kind of wish would be over with. Actions that you might just be able to do without totally, because whenever you are connecting at that level, it reminds you of something else. It reminds you of an inadequacy you have or something that happened to you against your will or something that you did to somebody else. Cold, hard math. So listen, if you're hiding or distancing yourself from your spouse, don't be fooled into thinking that it has no effect on your sex life. It does. It has a huge implication. It's there. It's there. And many of you have actually thought hard about bringing these things to your spouse. Many of you have actually considered taking it to them and saying, hey, listen, I'm really struggling with this and I really want to talk to you about this. Can we talk about this? Or, hey, you do this thing, and when you do, I feel disgraced inside. It makes me feel dirty. It makes me feel ugly inside. But that question lingers in the back of your mind. Will I be safe? I'd like to talk about that, but will I be safe? Or will that be the discussion that just totally nullifies our marriage? Can our marriage even hold the weight of a discussion like that? No, I don't think so, so I'm just not going to do it. For the love of the marriage. So we just avoid it. And listen, if I've been describing you and you have a pit in your stomach, that's because of shame. Again, it's because of shame. And that shame is coming from sin that came from your first parents. That's why it's there. 
some of you might not even buy the whole Jesus thing anyway, right? But you still know what I'm talking about. Isn't that interesting? Some of you might not even buy the whole Jesus thing, and you get shame. You get it. I'd like to submit a question if that's you. Where do you think that comes from? Where did that pit in the stomach originate for you? Because I'd like to submit there's only really one remedy. It's not a Joel Olstein book. It's really not any book. It's not going to be a conference that's going to help that pit in your stomach as you deal with these shame that has tracked you your whole life. It's not going to happen that way. If you have shame from the past, building a moat with a thin little drawbridge to your spouse is never going to heal you. It's not going to happen. I'll tell you what, sometimes the fig leaf isn't even distance. Sometimes it's something different, more like a disguise or a, a misdirect or a sleight of hand. Where if we have a lot of shame in one area of our life, we totally just outcompete it by doing so well and perfect in this area of our life right? If I could just be perfect and perform well over here and show that I am reputable and I am beautiful, then over here maybe no one will see my ugliness. Maybe it'll be covered up. In, in uh, street magic or street illusion, there's this technique called, um, well, it's a sleight of hand, but it's called misdirect. And what, it's very easy to do. All it means is, is I can do something to get your attention, to get your eyes off of the trick. It might be a difficult trick. It might be hard to do with one hand, but all I have to do snap over here everyone looks at the hand or they look at my face or I could just talk louder and everyone looks up at my face or I could point out someone's shoes and everybody looks and by the time they look back the trick is done it's a misdirect it's actually half of the trick most of illusion is in the misdirect it's not in the trick itself and this is how we handle our lives especially when shame is there it's a big misdirect everybody look over here nobody look over here guys Guys do this. Guys who struggle with maybe something that in our culture is a shameful, even struggle to have, a same-sex attraction or a porn addiction or something like that will amass a bunch of cash or a high-reputation position in a company to show I'm really not that bad of a person. Look, I'm actually put together. I mean, yeah, I've got damage over here. And yeah, maybe I was abused as a little kid here, but that didn't affect me. Look at this. And that's a fig leaf we use. And it's not just for husbands. Wives do it too. Wives do it too. Moms do it too. They feel dirty inside. They feel ugly inside. They don't like the way they look. They don't like what they did. They don't like what was done to them. And they carry the shame. So they just try to knock the ball out of the park when it comes to being a mom or a wife to prove, to work, to perform, and prove to themselves and God that they really are not ugly inside. We all do it. It's a sleight of hand. Yet, we all still have shame. It's not really working, is it? So how do we do this? How do we do an intimate life with our spouse, especially when it's difficult and we might not be so willing to lay all our cards on the table? Because the culture just says like yourself more. Literally, just like yourself more. Just say positive and better things about yourself and the shame will go away. How's that working for you? The devil will tell you, don't dare have a conversation. Don't dare connect to your spouse on an intimate level like that, before or after marriage. Don't ever do it, because they'll reject you. They'll crush you with their rejection. But Jesus says something else. In Jesus' life and death, in Jesus' life and death, he paints a different picture. And he shows us how we can be naked and unashamed with our spouse. I'd like to look at that. 
Jesus got it, didn't he? Did he not understand the shamed, the outsiders, the leprous, the unclean? Listen, he was born an outsider. And he grew up an outsider. And he lived and he worked among outsiders. He ministered to outsiders. And yes, he was murdered on a cross between two outsiders outside of a city. He died as an outsider to bring you, who really are an outsider, in. He gets it, friends. Shame is something he gets in spades. He understands it. Lepers, prostitutes, murderers, tax collectors. Just look at the scriptures. And a lot of these people, they had to wear their stigma on the outside. You knew a prostitute when you saw her. They advertised their stigma. Lepers would have to cry out, unclean, unclean. They're advertising their stigma. They're letting everyone know, this is my shame. And Jesus, like, just went right into the middle of that. He knew what it was like to be an outsider. And think he would heal these people who would seem unhealable. Heal them. Love them. And listen, this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but it might be worth saying, God didn't heal people just because he was nice. I think sometimes when we read the passages, we'll start to think, man, God's just really nice. Oh, she can't walk. Healed. Now you can walk. Look how nice I am, right? Sleeping problem? Healed. Pretty nice. Dead? Now you're raised up because I'm a nice God. Now listen, he is nice and he is benevolent and he is good and his posture towards us is good. But understand, in his healing, when Jesus Christ was healing people, a lot of that was a prophetic pronunciation of an ultimate healing that will be coming. With his living and his breathing and his talking, he would heal a leper. But in his dying, in his gasping last breaths, he would heal a nation of lepers. He got it. He understands it. He identified with the excluded. He shared their humiliation. Isaiah 53 says it. says he was a man of sorrows, doesn't it? That he was despised. He was rejected by men. Listen, he even died as a humiliated outsider. It wasn't just living. They didn't even kill him inside the city limits because that's for insiders. If you were an outsider, if you were rejected by culture, you were killed outside the city gates, and he even experienced that. This is what F.F. Bruce says. Now, we've heard things about how painful the crucifixion was. We rarely hear a statement like this on the shame that was associated with it. He says, to die by crucifixion was to plumb the lowest depths of disgrace. It was a punishment reserved for those who were deemed most unfit to live. For those who were subhuman, unfit, subhuman. Any of you ever felt like that before? Unfit, subhuman. So how did he do it? How did Jesus contend with shame? How can that lead you in life, and how can that bring healing to your marriage? It's all wrapped up in how Jesus dealt with shame. Hebrews 12.2 says this, and this will be up on the screen. Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, and who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, he did what? He despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He despised it. Now listen, despise, when we use the term today, like I despise coffee that's not Starbucks. I despise it, right? That just means I hate it, I don't prefer it, right? 
I despise it. Despise translates something different in this text. Despise here means to care nothing for, to disregard, to assess it, to test it, to measure it up against something of more beauty and grandeur and discount it totally. So Jesus took the shame of the cross and he assessed it. And he analyzed it. And he looked deeply into it, but it didn't persuade him. And it didn't intimidate him. And it didn't control him. He discounted it. He despised it. That's what the passage means. Now, it's important for you to see that it's not just in life, but in his death that he despised and can associate with shame. And hey, listen, even your shame. And I'm not talking corporately. That'd be easy. I'm talking about yours personally. That thing that came up in your mind as soon as I started talking about this. That thing that started making you feel uncomfortable. That thing that was making you hope that this would be a really short sermon today. That thing that is there. That thing you did. That thing that was done to you. Listen, Jesus doesn't just get that. He doesn't just resonate with that. He doesn't just understand it. He felt it. He felt that shame. He took it and put it on his own two shoulders while it was draped on a cross and he felt all of it. He despised it and because of that he took it from you. That's the weight of it. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. It's a real important passage for us as we glue it to the one that we just read. For the love of Christ controls us, Paul says, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all. Now catch it here. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So he's saying that we don't have to live for ourselves any longer. No need for us to be engrossed in our own past and history and humiliating blemish. No need to be fixated on it, focused on it, obsessing on it. No need for any of that. We can actually think not less of ourselves, but think of ourselves less. We have freedom for that in the cross. A lot of you know this, but what does it mean for your marriage? Very simple. This is a statement you need to get. You cannot serve your spouse and protect yourself at the same time. You cannot live in self-denial You cannot live in self-denial and serve your spouse, yet keep that perimeter up and those fig leaves up and protect yourself at the same time. It's impossible. You cannot do it simultaneously. You cannot serve your mate and protect yourself. You must die to yourself that another might benefit. I mean, does that not sound like the gospel? The thing about the gospel is someone is dying so that another benefits. Very basically. That's a very basic thing. But you see it in all the aspects of how we are to live as people. Let me take evangelism. Off the top of my head, evangelism. Isn't a little piece of you dying so that another benefits? Yeah. What about financial stewardship? Isn't there a little piece of you that dies when you write the check so that another may benefit? Your marriage is no different. Your marriage is no different. We can be so engrossed in our own pain and mess and history and woundedness. We can be so engrossed that we're not even able to live in self-denial. So we have to lay it down. 
And yes, it will feel like dying. You know, that's the thing about dying. It feels like dying. That's the thing about the cross. It feels like the cross. To take up your cross daily, it should feel like you're being crucified. The thing about the cross is it feels like the cross. But whenever you do this, and whenever you lay down your concern of protecting yourself and this acceptance that you just siphon and suck away from your spouse by keeping things hidden, whenever you die to all of that, you're able through the gospel, through what Jesus has done and how he calls you, able to redress each other. I'm able to put a, a white robe on my wife and she's able to put a white robe on me. We're able to look at each other in the eyes and see ourselves through the eyes of God because of what Jesus has done. No blemishes, no lint, no shame. There's nothing wrong with being naked. There's no shame in that. Shame came because of sin. Being open and vulnerable between my wife and me. That is something that God wants. It's what Adam and Eve had, and he's driving your marriage towards it. And the gospel helps us in this. Here's a passage in Ephesians 5. We've read Ephesians 5 every single week for the last two months. Um, and I love it. We're going to jump in at, at verse 25 on the fifth chapter. And it says simply this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word or washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Man, that sounds rather intimate to me. To be cleansed with water, to be washed, to be sanctified. It sounds intimate. It sounds like something that requires a very close proximity. Something that understands that zits will be seen, and blemishes will be very obvious, and the wrinkles will all be there. And yet it happens. Yet it happens. And the great instrument of how Jesus does this is nothing more than his gospel, which is what the word means here. When it says the washing of the water with the word, you could just literally stick gospel in there, the gospel story. So, okay, Luke, I get it. Jesus gets shame. He understands it. And I understand, Luke, that we are supposed to think less of ourselves and to die to our needs and to serve the other. And I get all this, but what do I do about that feeling I still have inside? I still have that dirty, grimy, sleazy, unworthy, leprous feeling that's stuck to me. What do I do about that? Let's look at what happens in Genesis 3.21. This is really important for us today. Genesis 3.21 and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now listen, this first sacrifice in the Bible that's mentioned right here was nothing more than just an animal. An animal. A first sacrifice to cover our parents' shame. And that is to nuance a better sacrifice coming, not an animal, but a king. It wouldn't be just another sacrifice, it would be the last sacrifice not to just cover the shame of one couple, but to cover your shame, the shame of mankind. And we have it here before us. God is our shame coverer. God is our shame coverer. And he is the one that is going to remove disgrace from you. He is the one that will bring purity back to your nakedness to make you unashamed before your spouse. You man and wife being vulnerable together. It's more than just keeping the lights on 
on date night. It's having a hard talk when you're looking her in the eye or she's looking you in the eye and saying something that you just know that you know that you know, that you just know that you know is going to be a, a, a troublesome thing for her to hear or for him to hear. That you're thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to say this, but we're probably going to need counseling after this. You might. You might. But I'm talking long-term health. I'm not talking about what's easy right now. I'm talking about what's going to bless your marriage and your kids and your grandkids. I'm talking about something totally different. I'm talking about honesty. Listen, some of you have not been very intimate in your marriages. You've just not been there. I mean, yeah, you'll laugh and you'll hold hands and you'll kiss and you'll make out, but all it needs is something to be brought up to remind you of that thing or those things or your past or whatever it is. And you just see the lint right up in your face and you draw back. You draw back because you're afraid of being rejected. You fear rejection. Rejection promises you that you will be abandoned. Right? That shame, it just assures you he's going to drop you like a bad habit. She is going to never look at you the same again. That's what it promises. And the enemy, the enemy the whole time is lying to us. The enemy is all the time trying to convince you that if you do, it will damage your marriage. He's trying to get you to be something less than piercingly honest. The reason he does that is not because he wants to help your marriage, friends. The reason that that happens and that temptation away from good, healthy, honest obedience is there is because he knows what the opposite will produce. He knows what a connected couple can produce. One who is truly naked and unashamed before each other, both physically and emotionally. He knows. He knows. And I will tell you, because I know some of you are already thinking of a plan B, because what I'm proposing is just difficult. I will say this, and this is not to manipulate you. God will not give you a healthy, stellar, growing, vibrant marriage and let you keep that thing hidden. It won't happen. You can pray, God, give me a healthy marriage. God, give me a buoyant marriage. God, give me a marriage for the decades. Give me a marriage that will go. He's not just going to give you a good marriage and let the stuff stay hidden. He's going to deal with the shame. That's how he's going to answer your prayer, friend. He's going to do it by dealing with that shame. You know, Matt Norman, um, most of y'all don't even know this, he's been writing a book, and it's going to get published because it's awesome, and he's awesome. And he wrote this book, and on page 72, and it's going through content editing right now, but I can't wait for it to be finished. He's brilliant when he puts the stuff together. He, um, he said this, and I felt like it was really helpful. He says this, God redefines and reorients to himself, and he satisfies more deeply than any idol could. He does not give a woman who struggles with her image the quick satisfaction of vomit-induced thinness. He shows her the immeasurable worth she has in Christ, who pours over the shamed, becomes shame on their behalf, and embraces his bride unashamed. Pray all you want. Pray all you want. Pray all day. God, give me a good marriage. But he's not just going to give it to you so you feel better and it's easier whenever he comes from, from work or whenever she gets around you. Whenever you pray, God, give me a healthy marriage, you are going to have to contend with this. And it is good for you. And yes, she'll cry and he'll cry. Yeah, he'll be mad and they'll be fighting at first. Very possibly. But watch what it does. Watch the intimacy that comes from it. Watch the clinging that comes from it. 
Watch the beauty that is produced from it. There's a beauty in being very naked, very vulnerable, very exposed, with no shame attached to it. A deep beauty. This is what Matt's saying right here. He's saying that God will redefine you and reorient you. He also says this, no shame is ever beyond his intimate lifting. Boy, that's a beautiful statement. No shame is beyond God's infinite, intimate lifting. Nothing you have done. Have you had an abortion? He has grace, even for that. Do you have an addiction? God has grace that plunges deeper than your addiction. Right? Have you been abused? God has grace that will minister to you that is bigger than that abuse. Have you abused? Listen, friend, God has grace that plunges even deeper than that. There's nothing you have done, no speck of lint on your brush that can outcontend God for his very own grace. It's impossible. So listen, as I'm closing, married, if you're married in this room, my challenge to you is to have some hard talks. Talks you should have had a long time ago. And you know what talks I'm talking about. Ones you should have had a long time ago. You should start to have those. Let your spouse know what makes you feel shame. Let your spouse know what makes you feel exposed. Where you feel like a leper. Where you feel dirty. And I will say this. I want you to also repent. This is a challenge to you to repent. To turn from this desire to hide it away and secure acceptance from your spouse that you can only get from God. You see, it's idol worship whenever we get more adoration and acceptance from our spouse than we get from God. That's why you're silent with those things. You don't want to be rejected. It's because you're not satisfied in the fact that you're totally accepted already in Christ. So what we do is we shove Jesus aside off the throne, we put our spouse right up there, and we say, I can never tell him or her this thing because then I'll get dumped on my face and that will just crush me. That's something you literally have to repent from because you've made something much bigger than you've made God. It's sneaky, though, how it gets in there, doesn't it? It's sneaky. Because we think I'm a victim, and victims don't need to repent for anything. I'm a victim, Luke. You don't understand. I shouldn't have to repent for anything. You actually should. You actually should. Just start off with the question this. Husband, wife, there is something I need to talk to you about, but I'm always afraid that you'll reject me if I bring it up. And then let her rip. Pray about it. Say it in love. And then let her rip. Listen, if you're single, you understand shame and disgrace you already understand it, don't you? You already get it. Let me just reaffirm you in the fact that God is your shame coverer. That will be found in God. A woman, a guy, will not cover your shame. Reputation, wealth, performance will not cover your shame. Nothing can. Nothing can. So pray, and even do this. Pray for your future spouse. This is something that single people don't do very often. Pray for your future spouse and the lint that they pick up. Pray for the thing that might have happened to that person to cause her to hate men so much or that thing that happened to that guy that has totally wrecked his personality. 
Pray for your future spouse. Pray that God would show them how to contend with that shame. And listen, if you're lost, if you're lost and drifting and distant and you feel like you can't connect with God and you feel like you're very far from God and you're not sure about the whole Jesus thing, you might or might not like God, but you certainly hate shame. You certainly hate disgrace. And I'm here to say that God comes not with disgrace, but he comes with grace, right? Grace, the idea of benefiting you, blessing you, even though you deserve the total opposite. You see, you do deserve to feel worthless. Isn't that crazy? That's a weird thing for a pastor to say. You deserve to feel leprous and diseased and unworthy. That's what you deserve, and I deserve it too, right? But we get not what we deserve, but we get the opposite. We get grace, which is a healing and a remedy to us in that moment. So what I would say to you is God is our shame coverer and he is here with grace and it requires repentance and confession, confessing that he is Lord and he is the one that dispenses the grace and to confess that you are an outsider, not just little sins that you do. Don't just go down a a roster and list all the sins that you do because then you'd have to list all the good things that you do as well to secure your own self-righteousness but also repent from the fact that you're an outsider. God, I'm an outsider, and I need you. You guys, you can go ahead and come on up. Matt, you can go ahead and come on up, bud. And Matt's going to pray for us and minister. He's 